All right, so last week we saw the power of the tongue, right? Our words have the power to heal, and it has the power to hurt. And the reason why our words and the tongue has that much power is because you and I are made in the image of God. We are not just biological, evolutionary accidents, but handcrafted in the image of God. We saw the work of God is expressed best in our hearts by what we say and do. This is a ministry that the Christian embraces. It's something that we're constantly cognizant of, is that whatever God is working into our hearts, it's going to be coming on how we speak to people and how we treat people. We also saw that our words are a gauge for our hearts. So essentially, your speech, your words are a barometer or a speedometer that says how fast or how slow your heart is ticking in alignment with God. We should embrace the idea that God has put people into our lives, that you have relationships, Christian relationships and non-Christian relationships, so that you can use your words well in front of them. And that should be our mission, to not just be engaged with Christians, but equally to be engaged with non-Christians, so we can speak well and live well and honor our Lord in front of them. We do not want to be the fool, right? We looked at the fool last week and how the fool speaks rashly. The fool, the fool speaks with no thought. They speak without considering what God has done for them in Jesus. Like last week, we do not want our speech to be like the thrusts of a sword that can just quickly hurt, and we feel the impact of that hurt for days, weeks, months, and some of us, sometimes years after those thrusts have occurred. We want our words to be encouraging and to be healing. And we make no mistake, and this doesn't mean that sometimes our words do not hurt, because like sometimes God is the great physician, sometimes he hurts to heal. So we ask today, how do we grow in this? Today we're going to see the truth of Proverbs, that no matter where you are, no matter where you go after this gathering today, that you are always in the presence of the Lord. That is the fear of the Lord. Therefore, you need wisdom from your creator and your maker and how to use your words well wherever you go. Let's get to our proposition. Today, you're going to see that the Christian, the promise today is that the Christian will gain discernment. This is good news today. You will gain the discernment that you need to speak wisely in the different situations that you encounter, that you're faced with every single day. When you consider God's constant presence, no matter where you go, no matter what you encounter or who you encounter, if you consider God's presence there with you, the promise through the Proverbs today is that you will gain the discernment that you need to speak well no matter the situation. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of... I may do that one more time and we'll take a break. Kind of like pivot through John, right? We're taking a good break for pivoting. The fear of the Lord is this. You are always in the presence of God. God is always present. Now, the wise, they know this, they love this, they depend on this, amen? But to the fool, the fool resents this. The fool resents and rejects the idea that God is ever present with them. Not quite sure if you have ever read or watched the movie adaptations of The Great Gatsby. This is my nerd showing because I'm an English teacher, right? But I love The Great Gatsby. It's one of my favorite early 20th century American novels. And in, there's a striking image in The Great Gatsby. There's this billboard across the street from this auto shop where this family is running this auto shop. And across the street, there is this image of, it's an ophthalmologist, right? And there's these great big eyes and glasses that are on this billboard that goes facing across the street to this auto shop. And it says that God is always watching. What is Fitzgerald, even though I do not believe that he was a Christ follower, what was he trying to communicate? This vague idea that we have deep down in our hearts that there is a God, that he is always present, and he is always watching. And he was watching the events that was happening across the streets at this auto shop. You'll have to read it or watch the movie if you don't have that context, but it's brilliant. 
The fool rejects the idea that God is and that God is present. The fool, here's the thing though, the fool's rejection of truth doesn't make truth untruth. Do you get that? Even though a fool rejects truth, it doesn't make it untrue. It just further cements and proves their foolishness. Denying that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west doesn't make it untrue. It proves that you are a fool who wants to position yourself above truth. Now let's apply that to God. And anybody in your life that you know is agnostic or atheistic. We're even talking Christian yet. Saying God does not exist, or doing your best to believe that God does not exist, doesn't make truth untruth. You get that? It's the same application. Saying, I don't believe God's word the way that you do. I don't believe the scriptures are God's word. Doesn't make scripture not God's word. Do you get that? It only proves that you want to be in charge of God that you want to be in charge of truth. You want to be God yourself. And isn't that Adam and Eve's deepest struggle that they have in their legacy passed on to us? We want to be God. We want to be in control. And we want to say what is true and what is untrue so we can have the sneaky suspicion of sleeping better at night, right? But when your heart has been and is being shaped by God, this is going to reshape your perspective on the words that you use. The Christian, though you and I are imperfect, we do have a desire to honor what God has done for us in Jesus. Amen? We fail at it miserably sometimes. There are some seasons I just, I just pray to God. I'm like, what is going on in me? I keep making the same mistakes over and over again, right? But they're still underneath the mistakes like we sing about moments ago. There's still a desire that God has created in us that non-Christians don't have. We want our words and our actions to honor the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So as a Christian, here's what you need to firstly realize. God is going to expose you and put you in a ton of different situations. The situations and the people that God puts you in is distinctively different than what God puts me in, Right? I sit at home Monday through Friday, 10 to 6, and I get to spend time with hundreds of teenagers. You don't. Yeah, woo That's just thrilling, right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I really do. And I tell them all the time, I love spending time with them. Um, but you get to go to places and be in situations and among people that I never will. For this short time period, which is honestly, it's not long enough. If you go to church outside of America... I've been in churches in Mexico and Australia and Ireland. They don't just meet for 70 minutes, 75 minutes. And they don't get grumbly, even though their, their stomachs may be grumbling, about going to the Golden Corral and we're five minutes over. They worship and they, they're together for hours. It's crazy. I loved it. I loved my time in those countries, just worshiping with God's people. And you're like, that sounds terrible. But shows how the church is a little bit different and shows our hearts a little bit here in the West and in America. As a Christian, God is going to put you in a variety of situations that I will not be in. And you need his wisdom to respond to those situations and to those people that you're exposed to. Wisdom is your heart being so in tune with God with his presence and with his promises about that situation and about that relationship that you gain his discernment to respond well in those situations. And it doesn't matter your age because we talked about this in the beginning of Proverbs that Solomon very young encountered God and God asked him, ask me one thing and I'll grant it to you. And Solomon in his youth, in his impetuousness, his impulsiveness as a kid, he didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for power. He didn't ask for fame. He asked for wisdom, and God granted it to him in spades. And he is one of the major writers of these Proverbs that we are reading, and we have been reading since the spring. So today we're going to look at how Solomon and the other wisdom writers discuss and share their wisdom with us and how we should speak. Our words are connected to our hearts, and our speech is going to reflect what's going on in our hearts. Then we're going to turn to application, where we're going to discern 
what the key is to speaking well. The key to discerning, how do we respond to those situations? How do we respond to those people in those situations? We face those situations knowing that God is present, actively and truly real presence of God, and that he has spoken in ways, a myriad of ways, that can point and be applied to the situations that we face. That's where we're going today. You ready to get started? All right, good. Point one. From these, this collection of Proverbs, I hope that you see this one truth, that you are to speak intentionally by carefully considering God's wisdom for each situation. I'm sorry, introverts, there's some of these phrases in the Proverbs where are like, woohoo, talk less, that works for me, right? But it's not about talking less, <laughs> it's about speaking intentionally. So let's go there. In our collection of Proverbs, we're going to see why we need wisdom, why we need to be wise, and then the effects of speaking wisely. Now, I cannot assume that in a room this size, that every single person that's gathered today fears God according to Solomon's teaching throughout the Proverbs. There has to be today at least one of you that does not believe that the presence of God, the real presence of God, in your life, and over all matters of life, is a joy to you. It's something that you resent. It's something you try to forget. However, this is the wisdom for life, that when you fear God, he is going to grow you to speak and act more intentionally. And sometimes that may be saying less. And sometimes that may be saying more, but there's intentionality behind it that he will work in you to carefully consider his presence and his word, his power for each of those situations that you face. Because unlike how America and the West tries to teach you, life is so complex and there can't be a cookie cutter answer for all the things that we face. There isn't a 30 second video that you can watch to help you face all the situations and the relationships that you're exposed to. That's the wisdom of Proverbs. Life is more complex, which necessitates a complex creator. Do you get that? Life is so complex, there can't be the simple origin of somehow some single-cell organism all of a sudden became complex. That can't be the answer. It's too simple. Let's look at Proverbs 17, verses 27 to 28. Solomon says, He who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silence, is considered wise. And when he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Introverts are rejoicing right now, right? The encouragement from verse 27 is to restrain your words. It's the image of as if that there is this powerful horse, this unrestrained horse that you must master and hold back. Solomon calls on us to guard our hearts. We've looked at this in past weeks. And what this means is that we must consider what's going on inside of our hearts before we react, before we speak, before we address those situations. Solomon here calls on the wise to exhibit a cool spirit, and that's in direct contrast to someone who has a hot spirit. Now, in the West and in America, we describe somebody who is hot, as somebody who is impulsive, quick to react, angry, right? That's what we mean by hot. They just let the words flow freely out of them. And then they just, right? They just dig even more holes. Proverbs warns against this. God wants his people, whom his son has died for, to be intentional as they face situations, as they respond to people and not to be merely or solely reactionary. Eventually, we have to react, right? We have to respond to people and situations. Proverbs makes a contrast, as they do all throughout these 31 chapters, between the wise and the fool. We do not typically des describe the fool as wise, knowledgeable, understanding, and prudent, right? The fool is reactionary, impulsive, 
and self-absorbed. Life is about him and nothing more. But Proverbs acknowledges that sometimes even fools can appear to be wise. That sometimes even the fool knows how to keep their lips shut. And when they do, it is jaw-dropping, right? It can give the appearance of wisdom and prudence. Now, why does this happen? Because it is wise, generally, to restrain your words depending on the situation. It is wise to be cool when others are hot, to be slow when someone's pushing you to be fast, right? Fools use their unrestrained words to reveal their unrestrained hearts. And then they mask that as freedom and independence, that no one can tell me what to do. But really, this displays how much of a fool they are. Look at the Proverbs 13.3. Solomon says, So the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And yet again, the introvert says, Yes! Right? It's life-preserving for me to do this. But we can use this as a crutch to say nothing, right? Self-preservation is a high need among people, not just Christians, but as Christians we realize that the greatest man, the God-man, did not consider life preservation, right? He freely gave up his life so that his spirit could work these things into you. So we see another contrast between the wise and the fool here. The wise guard their mouths. The fool keeps their mouth open. They're mouth breathers. Okay, now Stranger Things. Okay. The mouth breathers just don't stop talking. The wise keep watch over their speech. When others let it rain. We see this general wisdom. Christians are called to speak less. To speak intentionally. To stay cool when others speak more, when they speak inconsiderately, and they speak hotly. We're meant to be the contrast of this world. That's why Jesus says that you are light and you are salt. You're meant to be the flavor and you're meant to be the expression of purity and light in this world to contrast with what is going on. Now we got to return to the heart because the heart is a bubbling brook. Remember we talked about that last week? And we have to see it as the source for why and how we speak and act. So Proverbs 15, 28, Solomon says that the heart of the righteous, the heart ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked, it just pours out. And it pours out evil things. In this final contrast, we see the heart of the wise and the heart of the fool. Now, last week, we looked at the wisdom of Jesus, and he told us in reality, there's only two types of trees in this life. There's only two types of people in this life. There are good trees, and there are bad trees. There are good hearts and bad hearts. And you know the condition of the tree or the condition of the heart by its fruit or by its words and actions. At Heritage, we say words and actions, but there's one more piece of wisdom, which is those words and actions over time, right? This helps us in our marriages. Your spouse is not who or what they said in their last comment to you, either positively or negatively. It's what they have said to you over time. And that helps us have a cool spirit and how to speak intentionally, right? The idea that we are fundamentally good people that sometimes does bad things is foreign to Jesus, it's foreign to the Gospels, and it's foreign to the Bible. It's popular in America, though. But this idea that we're good people who sometimes do foreign things or evil things, bad things, did you know that this is Northern European and white of an idea as anything out there on the planet? The East doesn't have this idea. Only Northern Europeans, white people that's carried over to America, believes out of the Renaissance that we are good people who fundamentally do bad things. It's one of the whitest ideas out there. And we fall for it all the time because it feels good in the heart. 
The Bible never characterizes humanity as good people who sometimes say and do bad things. The Bible characterizes you and I, regardless of gender and skin color, as rebels. That's what the Bible does. As people who push back against the God who created us, the God who saved us, the God who speaks to us. The wisdom of Proverbs isn't that the wise don't speak. The Proverbs does say that even the fool can be considered wise when they speak less. Solomon is saying that the wise carefully consider how they're going to respond to people and the situations that they are in. This means that you and I as Christians do not have to be impulsive and we don't have to be reactionary to situations. But once again, here in the West and here in America, you and I are programmed to have immediate responses, right? Your phone does not stop making noises until you move to action, either to silence my call or to answer it, right? We have technology that can communicate immediately with people across great spans. But it's wisdom to withhold from responding to situations so that your heart can ponder. Do you see that? Have you all ever reached out to me, left me a text message or a voicemail, and it took me some time to respond to you? Vernon was quick to say that she heard him. <laughs> like all the way to the back. Yeah. So you know what I'm doing? I'm pondering, because I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to respond foolishly to you. I've been burned. I've been impulsive. And I'll get to that a little bit later. It is wisdom to withhold from responding in situations so your heart can ponder. The wise are going to grow in this, but the fool is going to remain reactionary. And Solomon calls this an evil. And you have to think back to last week and former Sundays and Wednesdays of a bygone era with us. We speak carelessly, impulsively, reactionary because we are evil. But the Bible means this by evil. You and I have spiritual scoliosis. Remember that from last week? God designed our spines to be straight, to be able to hold everything up and together. But honestly, we all have that inward spiritual scoliosis. We have this inward bent to our hearts that just wants to point back to ourselves. It's about me. It's about mine. I'm in control. I'm in charge. No one can tell me what to do. And America applauds that. Social media applauds that. It's your truth. It's your way. But Jesus says, no, no, I am the way. I am the truth. And there's a contrast that's going on in your heart and in the heart of America between who's going who's to win, right? Is it going to be American culture or is it going to be the gospel? God is working in the wise. He has given them new hearts. And over time, this new heart has the ability to straighten out our spiritual spines. It, over time, it gives us the, the experience of being healed of our spiritual scoliosis. The Christian is called to a life of pondering before reacting, considering before speaking. This means it is wise when you do not immediately respond to situations you are put in. And you need that discernment of when to pause and ponder and when you need to go to action. And likewise, I'm sure you've sent me a text message and I respond within 30 seconds. You're like, how does that happen? Right? And sometimes it takes me hours and days. And you, it's the wisdom of the Bible to know when to jump in and when to sit back and ponder. Because the reality is, I still got your text message in that real time a moment later, right? Vernon and my wife laments the fact that I have a device on my watch that tells me when you message me, right? Tisa said, amen, in her soul. I know she did. I heard it. So we ask, how often did we see our Lord wait to respond to situations? People often demanded and asked questions of Jesus, but he does not answer them, right? So now we're going to shift to application so we could see what is it that the Christian considers before they act and before they speak. Let's get to application. Here, you're going to see what we're meant to ponder, and it's this. 
that you are meant to ponder the reality of God's presence in your life before you respond to that situation. It may take a couple seconds, a minute, hours, days, or even weeks, depending on the situation. And it's okay to wait. Our application captures the fear of the Lord, I believe. The fear of the Lord is pondering the reality of God's presence and his power and his promises in your life before you respond to a situation. The fear of the Lord isn't an obstacle to what you want. It isn't a hindrance to what you want. It's truly the pathway and the key to give you what you truly need. And those who fear God know this, and they tremble, and it's their source of joy, and the fool rejects this. As Christians, we need to grow to ponder God's presence and power and promises before we speak and before we act. And once again, this is contrary to the culture that you live in. We are a speak and act first culture. We are impulsive and reactionary, and we disguise this as freedom and autonomy and independence, when in reality this proves that we are a country of fools. Pondering God's presence and promises about the situation you are in is wisdom. It's not weakness. It's your very strength. It proves that you fear God. It proves that God is working on you. And as Christians, we must make it our prayer to ponder God before we move, before we speak, before we act. Now, i got to put a scripture to it, right? Let's turn to Solomon's wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes to help us with this. We're going to see Solomon begin where you are right now, where God's people gather. The gathering of God and God's people is the starting point. It is the place where we get to ponder. So here's the scripture. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 2. Solomon, the preacher... Kahelet in Hebrew. Here's what he says. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. They do not know that what they are doing is evil. Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thoughts to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Conclusion. Let your words be few. This wisdom has application for the people of God as they gather, which you are doing right now. Solomon is calling for the people of God to ponder God, to ponder the situation they are in as they gather as his people. You got some tough situations you need to face maybe today or this week? Are there some people in your life that are waiting for a response from you about something? What you do as you gather as God's people has every bit of guidance and direction for those situations. That's what Solomon is saying. Solomon calls us to guard our steps, if you notice, in the moments as we go into the house of God. Here's what this means for application for you. This means that the seconds... The minutes, the hours, and the days preceding our gatherings is vital, crucial, and important. What you do and what you don't do. What you put in front of your eyes in those moments before, tons of application here. What you do in the moments before you gather as the people of God is either going to help or it's going to hamstring your heart's ability to listen to God. Do you get that? What you listen to, what you put your eyes on, what you talk about, what you do in the morning, what you do the night before, it's going to have an impact on this gathering, Sundays and Wednesdays. It is wisdom, therefore, to use your time well before you gather together as the people of God. This is hard, and I understand. You know what I'm doing on Wednesday nights before I show up for dinner? I'm working. Why was Pastor Joe so late on Wednesday night? Because I was working and then hurry up and getting ready to come here. I understand. 
that there are some things in our moments before we gather that we got to do, right? But the Christian is promised discernment for those situations. And part of the sermon is to use our time intentionally before we gather. In fact, Solomon says that you must keep watch over yourself before you gather. And the question is why? Because Solomon says that as you go into the house of God to be with God's people, your purpose, your intention should be to draw near to listen rather than to act. In America, we are seeing more and more a reversal is happening between those two things. In America, we have this pressure to always be doing something, right? There is this phrase that I can sleep when I'm dead, right? My father-in-law uses it a lot. Because it shows like, if you're not, you got to always be doing something, right? That's America's lasting impact on your soul. That's why American churches are filled with so much fun things, or what they think are fun things to do. But I tell you what, the non-Christian can always come up with more fun things to do than what the church can. Because the church isn't here for fun-filled environments. The people of God are called to gather, to draw near, to listen. Because faith comes from not receiving stuff that falls out of helicopters. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, or so Paul says in Romans chapter 10. It's why we also struggle with our phones so much, right? But ancient, eastern, and biblical wisdom is don't do, put yourself in a position to listen. But we, as Christians, unlike eastern cultures or civilizations or religions, we do not sit and do nothing to empty ourselves of thoughts, as many Easterns believe. Biblical meditation is an emptying ourselves. It's drawing near to sit and to listen so we can put the right things in us. So Christian meditation is forever distinct from Eastern meditation. It's not to empty, but to fill. America has trained your body and your mind to consume. We are a consumeristic society. So if that Chick-fil-A sandwich doesn't come out in 63 seconds for you at the drive-thru window, we're infuriated, right? I had a buddy yesterday post on social media about how long he had to wait for his Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. But you know what? There are people on this planet that will be amazed that you can get a chicken sandwich hotly made for yourself that you did not have to do in a matter of minutes, right? It's just how consumeristic we are in the West. The Bible wants to retrain how you listen, how you sit, and what you do as you sit. Solomon says as the people of God, you need to listen above doing. And here he says, you have to listen above giving an offering. But notice what he says right here. Like, yes, I get to give less. That's not what Solomon is saying. He qualifies himself. The offering of the sacrifice of the fool, right? The presence of God for the fool is not a comfort, and it's not their hope. It's an obstacle. It's a hindrance, right? And sometimes fools do things that appear to be religious. I mean, you're doing something that appears religious right now, and you can be a fool because the fear of the Lord is not your heartbeat. Solomon says, when you gather as a people of God, draw near to listen. Anything else that's not done with this motivation is the offering of a fool. Solomon wants a gathering of God people, of God's people to be an overflow of how we are living in the seconds, in the minutes, in the hours, and the days leading up to our gatherings. So what does this look like? Solomon speaks about not being hasty in word or impulsive in thought. Do you see those two things? James, the brother of Jesus, wisely counsels us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Tolkien in Lord of the Rings has similar wisdom for us. In his cosmology, he created a group of beings called the Ents. If you've watched the movie adaptation, you can bring it to mind. Ents are among the oldest beings 
on the planet, in Middle Earth, in creation. They are the trees of the forest who move and speak. And they are led by an ent by the name of Treebeard. And as Treebeard first meets two of our hobbits, Mary and Pippin, you find Mary and Pippin urging Treebeard to action. There's a war. There's a battle. you got to pick a side. Let's go. What are you going to say about it? What are you going to do about it? And if you've read the novel, you see this repetition from Treebeard. He must say 50 times in a short snippet of time, he tells them, don't be hasty. Over and over and don't be hasty. The hobbits say, let's go. Let's go to Isengard and fight. And he says, don't be hasty. Choose a side, good or evil. What say you, Treebeard? Don't be hasty. I think Tolkien is trying to communicate the wisdom of the scriptures here. You do not have to move at the speed that people are pushing you to move. And where would our relationships be if we gathered that? If a person, whether romantically, familially, at work, is pushing you to do something you don't want to do and you eventually gave in, that shows they don't have their best interest in heart. It doesn't matter if everybody's doing it, right? Treebeard, it's like, somebody pushes me to do something, I'm going to go very slow. I'm going to gather all the ends of the forest. Don't be hasty. And the hobbits are just going crazy at how slow he is. So you don't have to move at the speed that people are pushing you to move at. You can pause, you can pray, and you can ponder. And if those people in your life cannot wait, I don't think they should be in your life in that degree of intimacy that you've allowed them to be. Solomon's call is for us to not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought. Instead, we are to realize that we're in the presence of God always and to let that fact shape and reshape our responses. And we ask, okay, how does this happen, Solomon? How do we keep watch over our steps as we go? How do we not be hasty? The answer is, stop. Solomon's dad would say, be still and know that God is God. Realize you are in the presence of God just right now. As you are listening Jesus' promise is that he's always with his people. When two or more are gathered together, he's in the midst of them. Do you realize you are in the presence of God? Do you get that? You're always in the presence of God. In Psalm 139, David meditates and prays on the objective fact that God is omnipresent. He talks about no matter where he goes. He can go to the highest of heights and God is there. He can go down to Sheol, and God is there. The depths of the ocean, God is there. The mountaintop, God is there. God is everywhere, powerfully present, equally present, no matter where he is. So God is with David when he's on the throne. God was with David on the battlefield. God was with David as he hid in caves for years. God was with David as he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he's with us in our adultery as well. God is with David as his family is being torn to pieces by Absalom. This totally changed our perspective to know that no matter what we're facing, that God is present. He's not just with us in the mountaintops, he's with us in the valleys. Just as much. In America, we think God's only with us in the success when we are rich and not when we are poor. But God is equally present in both of those things. David feared God. And the presence of God was a comfort to him, even though he was a sinner. So when it gets brought to his attention by Nathan the prophet, that God was present and God saw and God told the prophet, and Nathan called David out for his adultery with Bathsheba, how did David respond? Justification, everybody does it. Kings do it. People of power do this. What did David do? He wrote Psalm 51. He said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? That shows that though David was imperfect, God was working on him. And the same goes with you and with me. Let's think about Jonah the prophet for a moment. Next year, as we're inching towards the end of the year, I'll give you some little snippets of what we're going to be looking at in 2024. And we're going to be looking through the prophet Jonah next year. Jonah the prophet was called by God to preach to a people group that was different than his ethnicity. 
and he refused to. The Ninevites were not as worthy as the Jews. There was this racial superiority going on in Jonah. He did not want to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel, so he ran away. And he ran away to get away from the presence of God. And here's the thing. We've had many people who've come and gone into this church, and they don't want to be in this church as an expression of not what you've done to them, but as an expression of they think they can flee from the presence of God. And we need to learn from Jonah in this regard, right? Jonah gets on a ship, and he wants to head the complete different direction than what Nineveh is, with the idea of I can flee from the presence of God and what he wants me to do with my life. He foolishly believed that the farther away he got from Israel and Jerusalem, the farther away he could get from God. But it takes a whole series of events, right? Some bad weather, some challenge from burly pirates on a ship in the belly of a whale to help Jonah see what David already said, that God is omnipresent. In the Great Commission, which we looked at the last two weeks on a Wednesday night, we see Jesus promising his church that he will always be with them, right? Even to the ends of the age, even to the final day of the age. When you gather as the church and when you scatter as the church, Jesus is with you. There's no boat that you can jump on. Not coming to church doesn't change the fact that God is not equally present with you as he is with me. There's nothing special about me. This should sober some of you to wake up. Then this should help you reframe how you are to live and new decisions you need to make today. This is something that the wise love and irritates the fool, right? Solomon's wisdom is this. God is in heaven and you're on earth. God is over and above everything. He sees everything. He knows everything. He is those great eyes and those great glasses overlooking the auto shop in the great Gatsby. And what is so special about our God is that even though God is in heaven, in Jesus, God came down to earth. There's no other religion that can claim this. For many religions, it is absurd, it is illogical for God to give up his position and come down to a lower position. It shows he isn't God, but he is a fool to many religions. But God left heaven, took on flesh, and came down to earth. And that is why you should fear God above all things. Trust God above all things. Lean on his own understanding above your own. Because God is in heaven and you are on earth, Solomon says, let your words be few. Do you see the conclusion there? And those who are shy and introverted say, amen, preacher. Keep preaching it and I'll keep applying it. But Solomon is not calling us to be silent. He is calling on us to think about the presence, the power, the promises of God before you react to the people and the situations you are in. So where does this leave you and I? I will be the first to admit that I am a fool in this area. I have been, and I will continue to make mistakes in this area because God is still straightening out my spiritual scoliosis. So bear with me. I'm a work in progress. Is that okay? Good, good. For most of my life, but especially when I was younger, I reacted to situations. Instead of stopping to ponder God's presence in that situation, I have been a fool. But Christ died for fools, right? Amen? He died for rebel, foolish people like you and me. So we resolve that even though God is guiding us right here to speak less, that does not mean that God wants us to be silent. America wants Christians to be silent and leave Christianity in the churches in the privacy of your home. But that's not the wisdom of the Bible. Speak less, but not be silent. God wants us to be intentional about how seeing his presence and how his promises fits into the situations we're in. 
and the relationship of the people that we're exposed to. So where does this leave you today? For some, it should make you acknowledge that you live as if God is not powerfully present in your life. Some of you need to acknowledge that. Like earlier, you are living life as if the sun does not rise in the east and set in the west. You need to acknowledge that you are living as if God is not powerfully present when you're speaking and when you're acting. You don't believe the promises of the Great Commission that we've looked at the past two Wednesdays. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, and that he is with you wherever you go. God is not only present in this church. You know that, right? It's not like he's extra specially present here. Our Father is powerfully present in all places. God is present wherever you go, and he's powerfully present in whatever you say and whatever you do. Some of you may need to acknowledge that you do not live, you do not act, and you do not speak as if God is present. This means that functionally, when it comes down to it, in your every single day functional life, you live like an atheist, even though you're doing something religious right now. That if a non-Christian came in and knew that you're sitting here, they'd say, you're religious. You're one of those Christians, right? Doesn't that sound like Peter? I can tell you are. Look at the way that you speak, the way you carry yourself. You've got to be a follower of Jesus. And Peter just curses that, right? For some of you, it should make you acknowledge that no matter your age, no matter your history, no matter your highs and your lows, God is not done with you. You realize in Psalm 139, David also talks about this book. And in this book was written all of your days already. And it lets us know that your days are numbered. You don't get one single day less than what God wants it for you. And you don't get a single day more than what God wants for you. So if you are still here in situations, this means that God is not done with you yet, no matter your age. Good news, right? Because of this, you need to stop, no matter the age, and pause and ponder and ask God, where does my life, whether I'm 8 or 80, where does my life need a change of direction? Because God is at work in you. Whether you're at home, whether you're out and about on vacation, whether you're at work, or whether you're at church, God is present. And especially, God is present when you think no one is watching. That is a comfort to the wise and a nuisance to the fool. For others, because God is in heaven and you are on earth, practically, you just need to speak less. That's me. And I have lamented, I think a couple times with you recently, that this is even more difficult for a pastor. It's even doubly more difficult for me because I don't just pastor, I also teach. For a living, what puts food on the table and a roof over us is me talking. You get that? Lots of words come out of my mouth. In August, when I go back to school, oh, how much my throat hurts because I talk all day, right? This should sober us. But still, I need to speak less. And some of you, so do you. I need to be more like Treebeard. I need to not be hasty. God is present, and he is working out his plan for my life, and that takes time. Words, actions over time. God is in heaven, and God is in control, not me and not you. This provides something very practical for us. Before you respond to situations, you need a processing moment. And the wisdom of the Bible is this. This processing moment looks like pondering the presence and the promises of God for that situation. That's what that processing moment is meant for. 
It may be a minute. It may be an hour. It may be a day, a week, a month, depending on the gravity and the severity of the situation. But before you respond, it is wise to stop and ponder God's presence and his word for that situation. And that will shape how you are to respond, how you are to speak, and how you are to act. And that's the fear of the Lord. If you and I get this, we're going to see Solomon one day. He'll say, you did it, Branchton. That's the fear of the Lord, what we're writing to you about for all of these years. Now think about in closing what Jesus did before the events of Holy Week, before his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. Before those events, Jesus stopped in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. You get that, right? There's a reason why in those plot details for all that action took place, the precursor to that was nothing. Well, not really nothing. The greatest of somethings. Stopping to pray to his father. He wrestled with his father's clear purpose and clear word for his life. And that processing moment, I believe, enabled Jesus to receive the betrayer's kiss, slaps from Roman soldiers, and nails on his body on the cross. This is what God will do for you as well to face situations. If you realize you need a garden of Gethsemane before you act. Not my will, but your will be done. Do you get that? David prayed, be still and know that he is God. And wisdom is found when you stop and you realize that God is with you and he has spoken to you through his word in such a way that it can be applied to those situations that you're facing and those people that you got to deal with. God will be faithful to provide the discernment that you need to speak and to act wisely in all situations if you stop and ponder his presence and his promises.